Paul. In the precious name of Jesus. I thought, too, we were already well instructed. I think we were well led into worship and instructed and taught into trusting the Lord and trusting Him to provide what we need, whether it is food or whether it's like um, like it says, he will make a way of escape in temptation. That's something we need, but we also need to trust God in that. And then we have enemies. Yes, our God is an awesome God. Well, let's just pause for a word of prayer before we go into the message. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. And Lord, our eyes are upon you, because you are our God. You are our creator, and you are our redeemer. We pray, Lord, you be with us in this part of the service. You would uh, truly guide us and instruct your people into the way of truth, righteousness, in a way, Lord, that will bring glory to your name. It is our heart and our desire, Lord, that you would receive glory this morning both by our lives and by the future that you lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To start here, I'd like to put a word on the board. The word cult. What comes to your mind when you think of that word? Do uh, good images come to your mind? What does it mean? What does the word cult mean? I'd like to hear a little bit. What's the definition of the word cult? False religion. Is every false religion a cult? Okay, let that go. <laughs> false religion. Anything else? Myron. A group of people following one man. That's what makes something cultic. Something clannish, closed. Is that what you're saying? Okay, it's. Uh, I have uh, some official definitions. Obviously, I have an advantage that you don't. <laughs> it's basically a noun. It's a religion or sect considered to be false, unorthodox, or extreme, with members also often living outside a conventional society under the direction of a charismatic leader. And that's pretty well keeps all three of you in there. And what do you think about when you think of cult or you think of brainwashing sometimes or you think of mind control, sometimes economic um, exploitation and other forms of abuse? I'm going to write another word.
culture. What comes to your mind when you think of the word culture? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it different? Could be either. What's the definition of culture? A little bit like trying to, for a fish to try to describe water. It's its environment, right? It's a way of life. Culture is a way of life. Any other ideas? Okay, I'll go to my um, definition. Again, it's a noun, and I have the dictionary definition. A total range of activities and ideas of a group of people with shared traditions, which are transmitted and reinforced by members of a group. And... Then I have a secondary, I mean, there's actually lots of definition, but I only have a few here. The behaviors and beliefs that are characteristics of a particular social or ethnic or age group. And I have a few examples. You could have the youth culture, you can have the drug culture, and you can put lots of cultures in it. The suffix U-R-E, and you English teachers can tell me if I'm correct. But basically, it means it indicates an act or a process or a result. Is that correct? Like press, press, sure. (laughs) Or seize, sure. It's an act or a process or a result. So, first we agree that cult has negative connotations. Now we have found out that we're actually in the very act of a cult. Well... Well, it gets worse. Cultivate. What comes to your mind when you think of the word cultivate? Is it positive? Can be. Usually is, depending what you're cultivating, is that right? Okay. What's the definition of cultivate? Obviously, it has an agricultural definition. I'm thinking of the definition that's not agricultural this morning. Taking your culture to a higher level because you're cultivating it. Okay. Any other thoughts? Okay, the object of your cultivation, you're attempting it to prosper. Cultivate is a a verb, it's something you do, and um, it's to develop or improve by education or training. To train or refine, and that's another definition here. To promote the growth or development of, to foster, to nurture, 
to discipline. That's how you cultivate. So in five minutes, we have gone from something that we call is bad to something that we are a part of to something that we are actually participating and encouraging and fostering. This morning, I want to talk about Christians and culture. And last Sunday's message, John had a very practical message, and some people like John's messages. I do. Some messages are not as practical. They're more theoretical, and some people like those messages more, and I do. But that's what it'll be this morning. This morning... We're going to look at how the clash of cultures, gods, and the worlds affect us and the challenges that we face, and also what we can do about it. You can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll read a number of verses there. Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses was instructing the children of Israel. He was telling them what to do in the future. He wasn't going to be there when they go into the promised land, but he was giving them the instruction. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 2. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver thee before thee, deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord shall be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, break down their groves, Their images cut down their groves and burn their graving images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. I think we'll stop there. We could read on there, but we'll just stop there. In the old covenant, Jehovah God was explicitly clear how his people were to relate to those that were in the land that had been promised to Abraham. And it was to, it was to be a full cleansing, a full... There's no compromise, there's no social interaction at all with the people in the land. Now, to the nations that were outside the promised land, the children of Israel did interact. They did not destroy everybody. They just destroyed the people that were in there. But then they related to the other nations around them. But they were doing so under clear stipulations. They were told, don't you go down to Egypt and get horses. Don't you go over to another land and learn how they worship their God. Don't you do that. They were told very clear. And they were a nation among nations, and yet they were distinctly different because they had a God who was their God with his laws 
and his commandments and his direction. And I think God had in mind, maybe you can talk about that later, like when the queen of Sheba came when Solomon had built that temple and she was just awestruck at the order and the, the wisdom and the majesty and the people's, how they loved it. She had never seen anything like it. I think that was God's intention for the nation of Israel, that they be a light in the world. This is God. And by, just like it says, let men may see your good works and that they would glorify their God in heaven. That's what the Queen of Sheba did. Is that thy God, uh, I don't have the word for me, but she blessed the God of heaven. But the point I wanted to bring out is the Jewish nation, their laws and their culture was in sharp contrast to the other nations around them. It was intended to be so. Now, in the New Covenant, we have similar instruction from God. You can read Second First um, Peter chapter 2, and I'll read a few verses there. Uh, we could read uh, that most of that chapter, but I'll just break in in, in verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against, they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the experience of the new people of God under a new covenant. Now we don't have a physical, geographical area. We don't have a physical nation among nations. And yet we have a people among peoples. We have a people among other peoples. A people under God's rule in contrast to peoples not under God's rule. They're not separate in a geographical area, but they are separated nonetheless unto God. And their laws, this new people, their laws and their culture is a sharp contrast to those of the people around them. Just like Jesus said to his disciples that they are in the world, but they're not of the world. Paul and the New Testament writers basically said the same thing. And today, we see the church polarizing often on two ends. One is a move to isolate and insulate ourselves from the world. So it's three words that I use, isolate, insulate, and detach. That is a polarization that we see the church 
in history has done and still is doing to some extent. It's done to protect themselves from contamination from society. It's what the monks did in eons past. And it's what peoples have done throughout church history. Generally, most of the time, it is a fairly small amount of the church that does this. But they isolate themselves. It's done on purpose. They do it for the sake to avoid contamination. So they detach and insulate and isolate themselves. Then the other polarization is a move towards integration and participation in the world and its activities. Sometimes this is just because of a carnal heart. Most of the time, it has the best of gospel intentions. It's done with the best of evangelistic motives to save souls and transform society. This is also done intentionally. They do it intentionally, being persuaded that this is the will of God. So one way we could get an analysis is to divide the church into three positions this morning. And um, we can call it anti-culture, counterculture, and enculturated. Anti-culture is not a very good word because everybody has a culture. It's just anti in the sense they're rejecting something more to an extreme. I'm not going to address the anti-culture this morning any more than to simply acknowledge that it exists. It exists in the ultra-conservatives. We're all familiar with that, I think. The reason some of us are not old order today is because we have rejected that position as God's will. Now, some might say, well, we haven't yet rejected it. Now, that's for another discussion. I'm not going to go into that this morning. But so I'm not going to discuss the anti-cultural position. What I will address this morning is the counter-cultural position and the strong call we hear today to forsake that position to become enculturated more or less. And also, even though we may not accept that, some of the tentacles or some of that teaching does filter our way into our churches, even if we don't accept it wholesale. But first, we have to understand how culture, the role culture plays in our lives. Ken Myers, in a message on cultural engagement, says this, and I'm going to quote him fairly long here, so hopefully you can follow. He said, many people have assumed that the task of the church is a cultural our cultural means it has nothing to do with culture. That our mission, the church's mission, is to convey a message about some abstract ideas to individuals detached from any kind of cultural forms or any kind of cultural implications. The idea is that the church's task is to give a message detached from anything else. A personal message about a personal savior. 
I remember most Ulsters talking 20 years ago. Something of this nature. He said um, about adding Jesus to your already professional life. I don't know if any of you remember that or not. He said, before you were a movie star, now you are a Christian movie star. Before you were a, Christ, uh, a politician, now you are a Christian politician. You used to be a sports professional sports player. Now you are a Christian professional sports player because you have become a Christian. That is a message that's received without cultural implications. An example. And sarcastically, now you, you used to drink beer, now you drink Christian beer. That's a little sarcasm put in here, okay. <laughs> well, Ken goes on and he says, when in fact, instead of that message, just a message, the task of the church is foremost to be a people, to sustain a way of life, a way of belief, and as such, call others to join our culture. The Great Commission is about making disciples, not converts. To baptize them, bring them into our communities, and then we teach them to observe all the things that the person who says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me has commanded. Many Christians today... Myers says, have the mistaken idea that we can have a transformative effect on the culture around us by participating fully in the culture's disorder. He said, naive and careless efforts to pursue for the very best of Christian reasons to pursue cultural transformation will inevitably Backfire, he says, with all the lethal possibilities of that metaphor. In the foreign services, it's called going natives, when over time the agent takes the side of the foreign country in which it is an ambassador, ambassador and not a citizen. And yet we are told we do need to engage the culture with evangelistic motivations. This thought, this thinking, in the evangelical church at large, has resulted in very little cultural transformation, but in a great deal of cultural captivation. That's the result as we look around us. Why is that? If I do a little bit of analysis, why would that happen? First, what is a culture? We're going to go into that in a little more detail. A culture is a system or a network of abstractions like beliefs or attitudes. Abstractions. You know what abstractions are. You're all school teachers here, right? It means it's not concrete. It's, it's just a theoretical. Culture is made of abstractions as well as specific things like um, the things of culture, like the books that, you, uh, that a culture has, the song that a culture sings, the type of building that a culture built, the kind of schools that we have. That's interesting, isn't it? The type of schools that we have. 
which are sustained. Now I gotta, I gotta reread this. A culture is a system or network of abstractions, which is police or attitudes, as well as specific things, which is a song, books and buildings and schools, which are sustained by conventional practices and institutions. Just as a garden is an ecosystem that includes soil, plants, insects, rainfall, patterns of sunlight, the effects of heat and cold, weeding and fertilizing procedures. So a culture is a complex whole, compromising element that interact and influence each other. And human cultures are much more complex than a garden because they include beliefs and ideas and have a spiritual aspect of, uh, of who we are. But deeply below the surface, cultures are developed upon beliefs and assumptions about what kind of world we live in and who we are as a people. And uh, I should have probably got some more examples. This is so theoretical, but if you think you're a cosmic accident, a biological accident, I should say, if you think you're a biological accident in a cosmic happening, you're going to have a very different worldview than you have an idea that God is a creator. And the cultures that you develop will develop differently. Okay, here we go. Below the surface, cultures are developed and built upon beliefs and assumptions about what kind of world we live in and who we are as a people. And those beliefs and practices are communicated to the next generation and on it goes. The gospel message brings with it different beliefs and assumptions of what kind of world we live in and who we are as a people. And as such, the culture of those who receive the gospel must change. Uh, one of the best examples I can think of is a number of years ago, uh, this is to do with charity missions and prospective books and some mission theories that were going around probably 15, 20 years ago. Uh, the initial mission model by uh, Carey and some other early missionaries who were early foreign missionaries is to go to a foreign land, you built a mission compound, and and then you you have a network and you just work out of a compound, a centralized centralized system. That was missionary work in its normal. Well, now. The idea is, no, we do not want it. We want to have indigenous churches. It's actually the opposite of the mission compound type of a thing. We want to have indigenous churches, and we can go into an area, preach the gospel, people will get saved, we'll ordain elders and deacons and leadership in that local congregation, and in three years' time, we can exit it, and it is an indigenous church. That is a goal that was strongly promoted. Now, it didn't actually work out that way then. And one reason it doesn't is because not only do people need to believe, get saved, get a heart transplant, and all that things, it is actually a completely different cultural shift that needs to happen in a lot of areas. 
That is why when Paul sent Titus to Crete, Crete was a heathen island in the book of Titus is where you read this. Crete was a heathen island with no, I don't know if they had any Jewish, I don't know how much Jewish background they had, but I think very little, if any. They had to build a Christian culture from the ground up. That's why you have about the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, and you have Paul's thing, let no one despise your authority. This needs to talk. These changes need to happen. It is a cultural change that must happen. They did not just gain converts in Crete. They built communities of disciples in Crete. And that is hard, tedious work. And uh, it cannot be done in three years. But today, the pool is still the other way. More probably than it's ever been. Now let me do, let me try to explain modern culture now to us. An analysis of modern culture or what some people call postmodern culture. And there are some excerpts from an article on Mars Hill Audio that I'm going to read here. You're going to have to listen carefully to get the flow. I hope you can get this. One of the defining characteristics of modern Western culture is to believe that there is no intrinsic meaning in the universe. In the words of sociologist Daniel Bell, to be modern is to embrace the proposition that there are no ends or purposes given in nature and that the individual and his or her self-realization is the new standard of judgment and that one can remake oneself and remake society in an effort to achieve those goals. There's no standard. There's no absolute. Only your individual right to make the world the way you want it. That is actually the whole gay marriage issue. What we see happening in the world is this very thing. Let me keep on reading. The reigning belief of modern culture is that each individual is the sovereign maker of meaning, whereas pre-modern cultures assumed a creator and governor who established cosmic order in which human societies and individuals must conform to, modern culture denies the existence of such an order and encourages each individual to assert his or her own order. Now, this organizing idea of modernity, which is modern culture, Modernity has several prominent cultural consequences. The most radical of these is the radical reorientation of the purpose of cultural institutions. Now, cultural institutions, just to give an explanation, is your family is an institution, church is an institution, school is an institution, government is an institution. He's saying Western, modern Western culture has completely reoriented 
the purpose for institutions. Let's keep on reading here. Historically, the institutions served to establish boundaries for belief and behavior based on the assumption about the nature of things. But since there is, for modern culture, no nature of things to guide us, cultural institutions now serve to equip each individual with as much freedom and power as possible so as to assert his or own, her own meeting account to meeting. Pre-modern cultures were systems of restraint. Modern culture is a system of liberation. In a society of sovereign individuals, because we're all liberated now, we're all liberated, we can all choose what we want. In a society of sovereign individuals, culture becomes less a communal way of life sustained across generations. In its place is an optional and individually selected lifestyle. In modernity, culture discards its concern for sustaining normative, objective, transgenerational order and instead promotes the individual creation of meaning, or at least the experiences that feel vaguely meaningful. Freedom thus becomes a central concern in modern culture, but the understanding of freedom has been transformed. In pre-modern West, freedom meant the ability to live in accord with the objective order of creation. To be free meant, first of all, to escape the bondage of one's own passions. In modern culture, freedom requires the social and psychic space to indulge one's passions. Now, I don't know if you could follow that line of thought or not. Hey, that's pretty long. But basically... That describes our modern liberal culture very, very well. Now, people can get saved in that culture, but they cannot stay in that culture. That's what I want to get across. Because that thinking, that culture is completely anti, well, let's go on. So, what does that have to do with us, we might ask? Well, we, most of us come from strong cultural backgrounds. So how does that affect us? We don't come from that liberal setting. Well, my second most common saying is, what happens in pop culture soon shows up at church. That's my second most common saying. Anybody know what my most common saying is? That would make a good Sunday afternoon discussion. <laughs> so how does that affect us? What happens in pop culture soon shows up at church. How does it show up at church? How does it show up at our doorsteps and in our families? How does the spirit of the age give subtle influence or maybe not so subtle influence to God's people? And I, I must say I'm not very creative in my titles here and my points. So I'm going to call number one point the anti-Ben Lap factor. <laughs> That's the best I could come up with. It does explain it. 
Most of us here have seen Ben Lapp's PowerPoint presentation that he put together to raise appreciation, mostly, especially in the next generation, for the lifestyle or the culture that's been handed down to them. He did it so largely by contrasting the benefits of the conservative plain culture and contrasting it with the disorder of the dominant culture. He used pictures, charts, and uh, statistics, and history. In doing so, he is accused of glamorizing the plain people, and you know, he does a little bit of that. I agree. He does. But what is his message? People are forsaking the culture they were raised in, and they are embracing another culture without thinking clearly what they are embracing. As John D. Martin said about 20 years ago, you don't get to pick and choose when you enter another culture. When you pick another culture, you take the package. You get the whole thing. And like Ben said, society's order, disorder is not far behind. So, how is that like modernity? In a society of sovereign individuals, culture becomes less a communal way of life. Sustained across generations. I, I, I gotta, I gotta redo this. If, if the thinking of the greater culture comes into our culture instead of our doorstep, when pop culture shows up at our doorsteps, then we have the, more the thinking of sovereign individuals and less of a communal way of life and less of a sustaining from one generation to another a passing on. In its place, you have more of an optional, selective, people selecting their lifestyle. That is one way pop culture shows up at church. Now I'm going to give you my gut feelings in this area. The culture I grew up in had lots of cultural norms that were biblically based. I know that I actually looked at the list that Dave Esch gave me one time of where the Anabaptist churches are contrasted to the evangelicals. And I looked it over and, and we, about, we about had most of them. Such as permanency in marriage, separation from the world, non-resistance, church discipline, they don't believe in patriotism, eternal security, infant baptism or child evangelization, open communion, and you could go on and on and on of the biblical things that were in my past, in my culture. Now, but separation unto God was and is still not the norm in many of those cultures. A true heart change and a love for the Lord is mostly missing. Evangelical, evangel, evangelism 
and care for the poor and the concern for those around us are very low or almost non-existent. Long-standing cultural sins were tolerated and allowed to go on in that culture. It is because of those missing elements that I and many of you, some of you, have come out of that culture. We have rejected the evil that is tolerated among them and have embraced the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. But we did not forsake, to the best of our ability, our cultural heritage, which was truly biblical. But here comes the push and the shove of the next generation. After hearing the siren song of pop culture, somewhere, somehow, it filters in. It's the idea is to shake off the vestiges of the former culture and establish another one. And I'm telling you, we have our hands full with that very thing. David Pershaw has some statistics that I thought I would bring up that he shared. He said in 1893, the Mennonite church split. There was a group, uh, 10% of the main body, 10% divided off. And that was actually the beginning of the old order group. And 90% stayed with the main Mennonite church at that time. From what I know of the condition of the church back then, I'm pretty sure I would not have gone old order. As I understand it, the main church, that 90%, it was being revived. They were having evangelistic meetings. They were preaching the new birth and experience with God and a walk with God. They were really getting involved in missions, local and and foreign. They initiated the Sunday school. That and much more would have told me I would have been with that group with my heart today. I would have not gone old order. The old order continued the path of tradition, ritual, dryness, and that entrenched corruption. You grow up, a certain age, you join the church. Nothing effectually taught about the new birth or of a walk with Christ. Even though they might talk about it, the meaning was very muted or hidden. Question I have for us today. Where are the 90% that stayed with the Mennonite church today? Or at the, the group that I'd have gone with, where, were, where are they today? Well, here are some more statistics. 10% stayed old order. Today, there are about 27,000 members of old order Mennonites. That would be the Joe Wangers, the Hornings, and the Whistlers, generally, and maybe a few other small groups. But those are the old orders. Now, if the main Mennonite church would have done just as well as the old orders in members, just talking numbers now, there should be around 270,000 of them if they don't know better. We're talking about 
a true Christian who are truly revived, separated from the world, and, and well, let's go on here. How many are there of those who did not become enculturated? Well, conservative Mennonites today that are not old order, who are conservative Mennonites, we're talking about not enculturated one, conservative is 28,000. And if you count the Holdemans, it's 47,000. But of this group from the Mennonites, 28,000. It should be 270,000 minimum is only 1 in 10. But it's worse than that. Of those 28,000, the vast majority have been transplants from the old order since that split. Of the original split, very, very few. I think the Brennemans might be one of them. I'm not sure. There might be actually a few here that might be. Very, very few. Uh, they were, of the 28,000, they're almost all transplanted from the old order or uh, converts from, from outside. They have, have both of them. Very few of those 28,000 can trace their roots back to the 90,000 who had the truth back then, so to speak. The group that I'd gone with, 1 or 2%, I guess. Among the Amish and the Amish Mennonite and that old order and the beachy split, the numbers are actually worse. And we know. We have experienced it in, in, in somehow. It, well, I won't go there. But the numbers are much worse in the old order Amish and the Amish Mennonite conservative split. So what I said at a recent brothers meeting that the average lifespan of a person or family leaving old order until they are mostly or completely enculturated is about three generations. Average lifespan. I'm not joking when I say that. I'm not saying lightly. That is statistically, I'm dead serious. It is statistic we cannot afford to ignore. Now, am I saying that all of those people who became enculturated are all lost. Or that they're not even doing lots of good. I am not saying that. I am saying if you believe that God's people are to be countercultural like we do here, then we need to recognize with this truth. And if we believe that, then we had actually better contend for it. If you don't, and if we don't, we won't have it for very long. Many today from old order who claim to have now received the truth begin in a short time to throw away the very embodiment of that truth. Granted, there is more than one cultural way to embody the truth. I grant that. You don't all have to be like this culture. I grant that. But whatever culture or whatever embodiment is adopted, make sure the truth is being embodied. So, a conservative, an old order or a conservative whatever, may rightly be skeptical of your change. 
because he instinctively knows the value and power of culture and the implications that change can bring. He knows that. And so if someone questions you because you're making some changes, don't write them off so quickly. He knows. That doesn't mean you don't make changes. I'm not saying that. So what happens when pop culture shows up at church? Well, modern culture in plain, easy-to-understand English rejects cultural norms handed down from previous generations. And in its place, it endorses and encourages individualistic pick-and-choose-your-own-lifestyle. This first point is the anti-Ben Lat factor. Number two point is uh, what I call the anti-authority factor. And for this, now I'm going to largely draw on an essay written by John Copeland earlier this year. And some of you may be familiar with it. But uh, that is a, an exceptional, exceptional article. I'll read here. He said, major cultural shifts typically take place as correctives to good ideas and practices gone wrong. Then he says, the age of enlightenment, and that was back, happened back in the 1700s, the age of enlightenment was a reaction to many abuses of institutional authority, both in society and in the church. Enlightenment thinkers in the 17th and 18th century argued against long-standing class distinctions that gave nobility great privileges, kept the masses of common folk in poverty, illiteracy, and ignorance. The equality of man became one of the new doctrines, and nowhere was it embodied more boldly than in the new world. The Declaration of Independence asserts that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of course, he's looking a little bit, as we look back for most of our nation's history, in the words of George Orwell, some people apparently were more equal than others. But anyhow, the resultant cultural shifts, however, have been in favor of individual. Individual rights, freedoms, beliefs, choices, and gifts. And potential are primarily about oneself. In the West, we simply can't imagine anyone but me being the ultimate determiner of major choices in life, of what beliefs and values I hold deeply, and nowadays, even what I think is right and wrong. Any group of which I am a member which attempts to dictate or even strongly urge what I ought to do or not to do with my life or what I ought to believe or not believe or what is right or wrong for me is seriously out of place at best and abusive at worst. Many cultural correctives that happened with the Enlightenment were understandable and right. The correctives such as casting off oppression of the lower class, doing away with torturous punishment, bringing in just laws, freeing slaves, offering education for all, and reigning in corporate high-handedness. But the pendulum has swung to such an opposite degree that today every person easily considers himself at the greatest good and the highest authority. This shift have resulted in a significant reduction of legitimate authority, whether it be that of parents or church leaders or policemen. 
and has weakened and in some cases wrecked legitimate and necessary social structures. I'm still reading John here. Specifically concerning church, authority has been so undermined that if a congregation decides to require something of its members, it is commonly labeled legalistic, and if it attempts to enforce what its members have agreed to require, it can be labeled abusive. Do you hear pop culture's song in John's essay? Popular culture, but obviously it's not in our church, is it? It's not in our churches, is it? What we have seen happening in our culture, which began as a major movement in the 60s, when institutions became increasingly reluctant to shape conscience, to define boundaries, and switched instead to insisting on promoting liberation, it has finally come to the church. Another observation by Ken Myers said that one of the distinctive aspects of the modern mind is the assumption that newer things are always better. We become preoccupied with things that we don't have rather than nurturing and stewarding of the things we do have. And then he gave an example. He said, my favorite example of this shift since the 1970s is towards informality in public. He says, people used to wear coats and ties to go to the baseball game, and now they wear a ball cap at church. He said, we've moved away from formality towards informality in almost every area, in language, food, music, and worship. And I'm convinced, he says, that it's largely a symptom of a suspicion of authority. You don't want to submit to a set of standards and proprieties that you didn't freely choose yourself. So, if the move towards informality expresses a widespread suspicion of authority, then why would that be a good up-to-the-minute trend to endorse? Well, I don't know if you could follow all that or not, but uh, we looked at the negative long enough. Let's look at the last word here. We looked at culture. Now we're going to look at cultivate. Cultivate. To promote the growth or development of, to nurture or to discipline. We are in the middle. We as a group are in the middle between old order conservatives and the evangelicals. We are infusing the old order culture, biblical culture I'm talking about. We are infusing it with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is to be firmly counter-cultural in this world. You know, that that's the true meaning of the passage I read earlier. He said, I beseech you, and Peter here, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The strangers and pilgrims is a state of being. It is a position. It is a reality. It's a people living amongst another people that don't fit. 
That's what it is. The church is not an escape plan. It's not a ticket to heaven. It is a recovery project, is what someone has described it. I don't know where I got that one. And Leslie Nubian, Nubigan, I believe her name is, I don't know who she is, but she had this comment here. That the preaching of the gospel that calls men and women to accept Jesus as Savior, but does not make it clear that discipleship means commitment to a vision of society radically different from what, from that which now controls our public life today must be condemned as false. In the, if you look, take the whole New Testament as a whole, the New Testament including Christ's own commissioning of the church before his ascension, one sees that the church properly understands itself as a people. It's not a club or a clinic or a show or a service provider, but it's something more like a nation, a people, a separate people. And the church's task is to cultivate its members into disciples to observe everything that their Lord has commanded. Remember the word cultivate? The church is to cultivate into disciples. That's actually what discipleship and cultivation basically it's the same same meaning. The church is eagerly active to bring in new members but it sustains a way of life into which they are brought. A culture which is in keeping with the Lord's instructions. The church's way of life, its practices, as well as its belief, will frequently be out of sync with the ways of the world. In baptizing its members into Christ and in its body, the church calls them to abandon their own allegiances. A discipleship is a work of alternative Enculturation. There's interesting. I don't know who Ken Meyer is. I think he might be a Presbyterian, but I'm not sure. Uh, this is a statement he made. He said, The more distant, the more post Christian this culture becomes, the more Amish like we'll have to look. And the more out of sync our communities and our activities will look. He said that's simply a logical conclusion. You know, we just had a conversation in the last brothers meeting about homeschooling and conventional schooling. And we are all serious about the proper education of our children. I am convinced of that. But what does it mean to educate our children? Does it mean to educate them so they can get a good job? What's the purpose of education? Is it to prepare them to be efficient workers in this American democracy? To help them to make a great deal of money? Or is it primarily for shaping, cultivating their character? You know, the whole thing comes in. What's education? Is it, is it, 
um, can't think of the word now. One is character. The other, what is educational aspect of um, what the words? Academic. academic. There you go. <laughs> is it academics or is it character? Let me ask you. If you have choice of one, which one would you choose? And now let me ask you, in your school, which one has priority? I don't think we ought to neglect academics. Absolutely not. I really think, in fact, we need to have academics. But character, shaping, cultivating, giving them not just a worldview, a worldview is necessary, but even down below the purpose, the assumptions of who they are. Who God is. What God's purpose is for them. <clears throat> is education primarily about making a living or learning how to live? See, in teaching, we're not just transferring information from one brain to another. We, as teachers, as parents, as Church leaders and school teachers, wherever you find yourself at, we are enculturating the next generation. We are cultivating. We are shaping. We are orientating the whole person to live in the future in this world environment for God. And yes, we, by earnest intent, and purpose, seek to pass on the biblical culture that we have embraced against all opposition to put that down. Culture is cultivated and it is meant to be multi-generational. Here's where we are at a disadvantage. We have many advantages. We have one disadvantage, many of us here. Many of us have broken from a long tradition. We have stepped outside of it. That puts us at a disadvantage in this way. We have broken tradition with our past. We say it was a right reason. We did it with right reasons. But it makes us vulnerable for the next generation to do the same thing. Reality. Fact. We might as well face it. We are vulnerable to have that pattern continue in our children until they are fully enculturated in culture. And it's we can't put our heads in the sand. It's the way it is. I have some closing statements here by John Copeland. What do we really want? And we could, uh, I could, uh, to be almost another message, well, what do we want? I think we want strong families. We want strong communities. But John Copeland does bring it a little bit in a, in a, uh, in a concise form rather than going through a long. So I'll just read his quote here. Say, we can expect our world, with its individualistic values and ideals, to misunderstand our communities. 
They may at times even refer to us as a cult. Certainly, we must avoid the errors of dictatorial authority or of resorting to harsh or coercive tactics. But we must embrace the teaching of Jesus and his apostles that the church is a community. The teaching of the apostles, Jesus and the apostles, and this is what it is. The church is a community functioning under authority. We must teach and practice strong community values like love, humility, submission, sacrifice, and commitment as taught clearly in passages like Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. For it is only in such communities that individuals can thrive and become all that God intended. Furthermore, it takes strong communities to receive Support and nurture the social casualties of an individualistic culture. And maybe that would be another message in itself. What would a strong community culture look like functioning? In fact, that is exactly what I want for us. So may God bless you.